Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the Implant Games Podcast. I'm your host Chris Kenthy and I've got a great show lined up for you today. So like always, let's go ahead and get started with the news. Um, Not much news this week, but there's been a couple of interesting uh, announcements from outside of North America. Uh, The first being from the Bihar Burrows. Uh, which makes really cool Dreamcast VGA boxes and accessories, like this Toro here, which is a VGA box with a SCART output along with a scanline generator. Um, they've announced a new device called... I forgot to include the name in my notes, um, but what it is, it is a... I think it's a Kira. It is a VGA HDMI converter for the Dreamcast. So basically, it's a VGA box for the Dreamcast uh, that outputs HDMI, 480p HDMI. Um, so you can skip devices like the Toro and the FrameMeister or a VGA to component adapter or VGA to HDMI adapter. Uh, this is going to skip all of that, plugs into the back of your Dreamcast, and then outputs HDMI for the price of $75. Um, this will also include a scanline generator for those that like scanlines. I'm not super into scanlines for 480p content. Um, I feel that they work really well for 240p games because it sort of mimics um, what you would have seen on a CRT uh, with a 480i or 480p game. Maybe not so much, but some people still get into that. Um, a few things that people are kind of concerned about with a device like this is the the trend now um, with things like the Ultra HDMI for the N64, along with a lot of other mods, is taking the actual digital signal from the console and then t- c- catching that digital signal and turning it into HDMI. Uh, totally bypassing the analog, um, that conversion to analog. Um, So like with the N64, you just take the digital signal, convert that to HDMI, and it's digital from the system all the way to your display, and obviously that's the absolute best way to do it. Um, So there are mods like that available for the Dreamcast that will take the digital signal before it ever turns into an analog VGA signal, and then output that as HDMI. So it's digital from the Dreamcast to your display. This, of course, doesn't do that, so you are having you have two conversions with a device like this. The conversion from the, the digital, you know, whatever internal digital signal to VGA, and then from VGA to HDMI. I have, in my guesstimation, in my opinion, it... The sacrifice in detail or clarity is, you know, might be 1%. Like, I can spot the flaws um, in, like, an RGB SCART signal, but it's very minor. And once you get a few feet away from a monitor, you might not be able to see them anyway. Uh, But still, really cool. The Dreamcast is a very tricky system to hook up to a modern TV, especially if you're going for that perfect 480p signal. And this kind of eliminates or addresses a need which is a mod free solution you plug it into the av port right to your tv don't have to worry about your tv having component inputs or a vga input or anything it's just really really cool and i can't wait for that to be released so that's from bihar bros the makers of the toro which is pretty popular in dreamcast circles that's going to be 75 dollars i would like to see like hd retrovision the company that makes the component cables for the super nintendo and genesis i would like to see them kind 
kind of do that, skipping the component, which is neat and handy, uh, but make an HDMI cable for those systems or, you know, in many more systems, take that RGB, convert it to 720p and uh, I'll put that right to a television. I think that would be really exciting. I don't know if you can do that for $75, um, you know, because there's some line tripling involved there, but... As cool as the HD RetroVision component cables are uh, in the year 2016 or 2017, it is kind of dated already. So maybe stuff like this, people really starting to tinker around with um, HDMI mods, HDMI cables, HD, HDMI boxes. I think that would be really sweet. So hopefully uh, HD RetroVision is working on stuff like that. No rumors or anything, just speculation. The other piece of news comes from Genki. Uh, Genki, you may or may not know, developed the they made super magnetic neo uh for the dreamcast they developed some other games as well but they're most known for the tokyo extreme racer series or shitaku highway battle i think it is uh but tokyo extreme racer for the dreamcast tokyo extreme racer 2 for the dreamcast a bunch of playstation games starting with zero and some drift games and then the last tokyo extreme racer game ever released was over 10 years ago now and that was import tuner challenge uh released exclusively on the Xbox 360. So it's been over a decade since there's been a Tokyo Extreme Racer game. Uh, they updated their website with a countdown. Uh, right now it's at about three days, so next week we'll know. And it seems like there might be a new Tokyo Extreme Racer game being announced in a few days, uh, which would be pretty awesome. I don't know how many fans there still are of the Tokyo Extreme Racer series. Obviously there's a reason after the 360 game they didn't make any more. I suspect it didn't sell very well. Um, the game is slowly climbing in value. I don't know how many 360 collectors there are out there, but it's about a $15 game, if you can believe that. Um, you know, a third-party game that not many people are interested in for the 360 goes for about 15 bucks. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, there's a new Tokyo Extreme Racer game. Hopefully, <laughs> it's not going to be on a system I own, unfortunately. I guess I'm going to have to buy a PlayStation 4, Xbox One, sooner or later. Um, so that's it for the news. Let's go ahead. I've spent a lot of time over the past couple of weeks, maybe even the last couple of months, I've watched a lot of movies. I'm trying to not waste a lot of time on Facebook, if I'm honest. Uh, so most of my days consist of uh, playing video games, writing about video games, uh, <laughs> or doing voiceover and video editing about games. Uh, but in that downtime, I, I've been trying really hard not to just uh, waste an hour on Facebook or waste an hour on Twitter. I'm trying to utilize all the time that I have to do something um, to accomplish something. Sometimes that might be, you know, cleaning the garage. Uh, but I have found myself watching a lot of movies uh, lately, catching, re-watching movies I've seen a lot, watching brand new movies I haven't seen yet, uh, like Creed or Captain America Civil War. Both those are on Netflix now. Um, and two, a few years ago, gosh, probably five years ago or even longer, there was a, a real like wave of video game style documentaries. Um, I talked about the Nintendo Quest documentary earlier uh, in 2016. 
seen. If you haven't watched that, you definitely should. Um, but I revisited uh, a couple of my favorites. So the first is Ecstasy of Order, the Tetris Masters. I bought this for $8 off Amazon. Instead of renting it, I actually bought it. This is a really cool documentary about the game of NES Tetris, uh, which is, of course, a you know phenomenal game. And some even consider the definitive version of Tetris. Uh, but what this documentary kind of does is it follows eight of the best players in the U.S., I guess. Um, it's supposed to be like a world tournament, but they were all Americans. Um, but it kind of follows eight people across the country um, that are the best NES Tetris players in the world. Record holders, contest winners, um, even people in Tetris circles, you know, that are highly regarded. Um, so it kind of follows these eight people and then follows them through like a... Uh, like a qualification tournament and then uh, they all kind of get together and then do this 2010 you know nationwide tournament to find out who the best tetris player is um and it's just a really well done documentary i really enjoy how it follows these eight characters and kind of gives a, a story to each of them and how they you know fell in love with tetris or different strategies or you know what they think about nes tetris a lot of these folks don't play anything but Tetris. You know, that is their game of choice. They don't play a lot of other video games. And they come from all walks of life. There's males, there's females, there's Asian Americans, there's white Americans. It kind of... It's just, I don't know, something about it was really captivating to me. And it's a, it's a documentary. If you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend you check it out. Ex Ecstasy of Order, the Tetris Masters. I think it's a $4 high-def rental or a $2 standard-def rental. And it's just really, really cool. I think it came out in 2012, so it's about five years old now. If you haven't watched it, check it out. And then the other one that I revisited is the the mother uh, of all video game documentaries, the one that kind of kicked off this whole subgenre that uh, I guess is sort of still going, but definitely peaked uh, back then. So this is, of course, The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. This came out in 2007. I don't think I saw it until 2010 or 2011. I don't know if it popped up on Netflix or something, or if that's when kind of the internet got a hold of this documentary, but this is, of course, the fascinating story of uh, the Donkey Kong world record, at least in the 2006 or 2005 uh, time frame. Uh, what's so awesome about this documentary is how it's clearly, I feel like it's made by somebody that has zero interest in video games and has a definite interest in creating movies because that's what it feels like. It's like a really good documentary that happens to feature, you know, Donkey Kong. So this follows Steve Wiebe, uh, a guy from, I want to say, Redmond, Washington, um, that was laid off from his job. I believe a teaching job. He was laid off from his job and he decided to fill his time with capturing the Donkey Kong world world record and then it also follows like this group of people uh that were like the best gamers in the 80s i think they were on like the cover of time or something like that and they all kind of have stuck together and they're kind of like part of this exclusive club and they don't seem to want new people to join that club. They're very protective of, of what they had in the 80s and that 80s arcade scene and, uh, you know, who was who. And so it's kind of like the story about this underdog, you know, trying to gain entry into this exclusive club. And uh, the main protagonist, no, the main villain in the game is Billy Mitchell, who owns a hot sauce factory or company or empire, uh, I want to say, in 
Florida, and he doesn't seem too keen on anybody kind of dethroning his Donkey Kong record. And uh, there's some inaccuracies for sure. It does a really good job of painting Billy Mitchell as kind of a, a villain. And uh, I don't know how much of that is true and how much is editing. And same goes for Steve Weeby. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe he's a dirtbag in real life. Who knows? Uh, but it's kind of like this good versus evil David versus Goliath story about Donkey Kong. And it's it's still, you know, here it is 10 years later and the movie is still very captivating. I've probably seen it a dozen times at this point. I absolutely love it. So if for some reason you're watching this and haven't seen King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, a documentary I highly recommend you check out. Uh, this movie I did uh, rent in HD, uh, which is kind of a giant ripoff because there is no HD footage uh, in this film at all. Some of the graphics, some of the text are high def, but the actual footage of, you know, Steve and Billy and all the other characters definitely seems to be standard def. Um, so if you're looking to rent this or buy this, I would actually recommend just saving yourself a couple bucks and buying the standard def version. Um, so two awesome documentaries and two awesome documentaries that just happen to feature a couple of classic games. I was working on I, a couple of years ago, working on either something in uh, a written feature or a video about some of my favorite video game documentaries. I have like a list of 10 or so. Um, another one I really enjoyed that's not video games, but sort of in that same 80s pop culture is the Rock of Fire Explosion, uh, which is about the fictional robotic band that was in uh, Chuck E. Cheese or showbiz pizza also super fascinating i didn't get a chance to watch that but you should check that out as well so just kind of wanted to touch upon a little bit about movies i absolutely love movies i've talked about that before a big passion of mine and had a lot of fun kind of revisiting some of these old movies i haven't seen in a couple of years so check those out uh, the next big thing i accomplished i actually just did this yesterday and that was i completed sonic the hedgehog 2 for the sega genesis uh, uh, this is actually my childhood copy, the, one of the first games I ever owned for the Genesis. I still own it, and uh, it's a game I've always loved and adored, but it's a game that I've never fully completed, um, and by that I mean I never collected all seven Chaos Emeralds and then defeated, you know, beat the game and, and got the, the good ending. The classic Sonic games always have uh, an alternate ending if you collect all the, you know, all of the Chaos Emeralds. So I got that on my second try yesterday. Um, I <laughs> which is a giant pain. It actually took me about four hours uh, in two tries to finally conquer that goal. And that, of course, is going to be uh, the video review for this week. That'll either be Wednesday or Thursday. Um, and I have to say, Sonic 2, generally speaking, I usually consider it my favorite Sonic game. It was the very first Sonic game I ever played. Played the hell out of the two-player uh, as a kid with my cousins and other family members. And it's a it's a game I like to revisit. I love the soundtrack. I love the graphic. You know, it, it's very Sonic-y and it's very good. Um, but actually going for attempting all seven chaos emeralds definitely changed my opinion on the game a little bit still kind of processing my thoughts i'm not quite sure how i feel about it now that all the dust is settled i think i did a whole episode a whole podcast episode on beating games and you know does that <laughs> are those opinions more valid or are those opinions more valuable um you know when somebody's talking about a game that they actually beat so 
Going through the pain of actually getting all seven Chaos Emeralds definitely makes me think about Sonic 2 a little differently. And I'm not talking nitpicky things, but it is a real giant pain in the ass uh, to get all seven Emeralds, to complete all seven special stages, to get to the special stages and the failure. And then you, when you go for that, you start to see uh, a lot of flaws that I hadn't really noticed in the game before. So I'm not quite sure how to put all of that together, but just some food for thought still a really fun game still love the game but it's gonna be a really tricky script to write that's for damn sure so i just wanted to touch on sonic 2 a little bit um usually when i beat a game uh, which is generally saturday or sunday i'll post a picture on the, of that on the facebook or the twitter so kind of giving a heads up of what i'm playing and how that looks so Sonic the Hedgehog 2 on the Sega Genesis. That should be a fascinating video, and uh, I can't wait to get that behind me and move on to Sonic Adventure 2. Alright, I wanted to talk a little bit about the 3DO, and I don't even know why. Actually, I do know why. Um, I did a couple of videos this week. Uh, one, the five worst games I uh, beat in 2016, and then the ten best games I beat in 2016. And uh, reviewing the list of games that I beat, which is somewhere between 30 and 40, uh, depending on um, ones that I just missed, and then uh, also depending on kind of how you feel about Atari 2600 games since most or many don't have an end uh, but at least three dozen for sure and that kind of really brought me back to the beginning of 2016 when I finally reacquired a 3DO. Uh, I've owned a 3DO for a long time. I found an old video from 2010 when I was trying to film my entire video game collection. And uh, I used to have, you know, a decent collection of, of 3DO stuff, uh, a lot of long boxes, pretty cool. And then I had to sell it uh, for financial reasons. And then in 2016, I reacquired all that. Um, in episode 75 of this very podcast, I did talk about two titles. Uh, one made my list of best games, and that's the Need for Speed. Uh, the very first Need for Speed game ever was on the 3DO, and this is a fantastic game. I won't bore you too much because I've already talked about it, uh, but kind of reviewing that review and reviewing that footage kind of reminded me how much I really enjoy playing this game. Um, if I ever start streaming, this is going to be like one of those first titles that I kind of want to go back and play because it's so good. And then I also talked about Road Rash uh, back on episode 75. Again, the very first Road Rash game. This series doesn't really exist anymore. I did recently pick up the PlayStation version of Road Rash, um, so I'll probably uh, revisit Road Rash again because I have some more games that I haven't gotten to, to talk about, but Road Rash, really good game. The 3DO version is really good. Not as good as the Saturn and PlayStation versions, but still just a really cool game that started life on the 3DO. And then back in episode 95, I talked about D, which I think I rated the 8th best game I beat in 2010. Uh, this is a two-disc monster. This is a full-motion video game, a horror game, a kind of a point-click adventure game. Really, really solid. Also available on the PlayStation and the Saturn. Uh, but I want to kind of finish off talking about the 3DO games that I played. The next one is, of course, Gex, 
the Gecko. This is a 2D platformer. Again, started life on the 3DO. Pretty awesome. Um, unfortunately, I kind of hit a, a, a brick wall playing Gex, and I think I got farther than I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, Gex, uh, Tomb Raider, and I think Gran Turismo were the first games I got for the PlayStation. Um, wasn't very good at it as a kid, but uh, at some point in 2016, I did attempt to beat Gex, and I think I kind of hit a difficulty wall in the final 20% of the game, the final world. Really, really tough 2D platformer, uh, but actually really, really good. Uh, as you know, I'm a huge fan of 2D platformers. Uh, Gex kind of adds a lot to the formula. For one, uh, he's a gecko, so he can climb on walls, which isn't, you know, that new or revolutionary that existed in, uh, you know, Knuckles. Uh, of course, you know, from Sonic and Knuckles can climb walls, uh, but Gex can also climb like the, the background, uh, which kind of adds a whole new dimension to do to 2D platforming. And I kind of find it very innovative, very revolutionary. Um, so I really, really hope that someday I get to sit down and finally beat Gex and put that, you know, put that one to rest actually looks like this might have been a pack-in it says not for resale on the cover but i haven't really talked much about gex but this is a really solid 2d platformer available of course for the playstation and the saturn and uh if you're a fan you should definitely check that out i love 2d games from that 32-bit generation uh the metal slug games the um Obviously, Castlevania Sympathy, Sympathy, Symphony of the Night is a really popular one. Uh, the Mega Man X series continued on 32-bit hardware. Shooters, of course, uh, you know, well, there was 3D and 2D, but I love 2D a stall on the Saturn, another great example. Um... Darius Gaiden on the Saturn, another, or yeah, on the Saturn, another great example. And then the, the final one, this one I haven't put too much time into, and that's Crash and Burn. This was the only game available when the 3DO launched, I want to say at the end of uh, 1993. This game, unlike the need for speed and unlike Road Rash, is actually 3D all the way. Um, so... The Need for Speed and Road Rash are kind of hybrid games. The actual track itself is a line-scrolling sprite engine. Um, it's not 3D polygons, which is why the road surface looks so good. Now, there are 3D objects in the background, um, especially in... Uh, the Need for Speed. The Need for Speed also features polygon cars. Road Rash features sprite bikes, so there's not that much 3D. Maybe not any 3D in <laughs> Road Rash at all. Uh, but Crash and Burn for the 3DO is all polygons, which is really kind of fascinating for me because in 1993, that was before the Saturn, that was before the PlayStation launched in Japan, and well before those systems launched in the United States. So a year and a half, two years before that 32-bit generation uh, really kicked off, you could play a fully 3D polygon game on the 3DO, and, and that's really impressive. The 3DO hardware in 1993 uh, was kind of off the, off the charts, really cool system. So this is a game I would really like to play through and beat this year. I don't know if we'll get to it or not. There's another game 
called Crash and Burn on the Xbox, weirdly enough. I don't believe it's related to this game in any way. They just both happen to be called Crash and Burn. Uh, so I'd like to get through that as well and then do a comparison video. Just, again, I find it fascinating that these two games, two racing games, have the same name and don't appear to be related in any way. So, it's kind of the 3DO talk for this episode. I know I talked about it a few times, but I really wanted to touch on Gex as well as Crash and Burn um, before I get to them. Um, I really wanted to talk about the 3DO for some reason. So let's go ahead and move on to some Q&A. The first question comes from Benjamin Figgins, who says, I'm sorry, but Toy Story on the SNES is not excellent. It can't even be called good. Uh, So I've played, I've owned Toy Story on the Sega Genesis for uh, quite a while now. One of the few games I got brand new as a kid, and that is a game that I finally uh, beat uh, last year. I think I beat it as a kid, but I had to use cheat codes. Uh, But last year, 2016, I did just sit down and get through the game with no cheats, no uh, glitches, no nothing. Just beat the game straight up, and I do find Toy Story on the Genesis, I assume the Super Nintendo as well, uh, to be a pretty solid platformer. Uh, It's a little rough around the edges in terms of gameplay. Uh, There are some parts that are unnecessarily hard. The 2D side-scrolling platforming levels are easily the best. Challenging for sure, uh, very solid, and I really enjoy the variety. So sometimes you have uh, specific objectives that you need to complete, um, checkpoints you need to hit. Other times it is just a straight-up 2D platformer. A lot of really great vertical elements in these as well, which really kind of, in my opinion, um, make it stand out from a lot of other 16-bit platformers at the time. And as far as third-party platformers go, I do find Toy Story to rank near the top. It's no Sonic, it's no Mario, uh, but as far as third-party platformers go, it's really, really good. The weak points are the non-platforming sections. The overhead racing is pretty terrible because the controls uh, aren't very good at all. And uh, the track design is kind of too narrow for the controls and you'll end up bouncing off the walls quite a bit. So it's not as tight as something like the Micro Machine series. Um, There's also some that are ridiculously, some segments that are really ridiculously easy. A first person shooter style level, so a real ray casting engine done on the Genesis looks amazing not you know brilliant from a gameplay standpoint third person racing again ridiculously easy not very engaging at all impressive for sure better looking than most uh, line scrolling engines third person line scrolling racing engines on the Genesis or the Super Nintendo like it looks a lot better than something like Top Gear uh, or the Lotus series but not very engaging and then the final level is just an absolute nightmare uh it's sort of uh, like a shmup, so forced scrolling, and uh, actually all the forced scrolling levels in Toy Story are pretty bad. It seems to run too fast on American hardware, 60 hertz hardware versus the, the 50 over in Europe, uh, so it moves way too fast and it's too difficult to react to what's coming. And because all the sprites on the screen are so big and beautiful and vibrant, uh, there's just not enough time to react to what's happening. And I feel those parts, along with the lack of continues or a password system, which was removed for the U.S., uh, do kind of knock that game down a peg, but I would call Toy Story good or great all day long. 
The next question comes from Lauer. How do you manage to, how do you manage with the spare replacement repair parts for Laserdisc? I would like to buy one Laserdisc player myself. Uh, Laserdisc is fascinating because it's something uh, that only seems to appeal to retro gamers and that is a, a retro video format and the reason why it's still somewhat interesting is because laser discs for the most part still look okay um it's on par with like a, a dvd from 97 to 99 uh, before they got real good with mpeg 2 compression and before dvds you know started incorporating anamorphic widescreen which definitely helps with the vertical resolution so Laserdisc still can look pretty good, especially if you just have an old CRT. Uh, the movies are totally watchable. Um, it's better than you would expect. And the audio is actually really good. A lot of Laserdiscs have uh, a two-channel uh, digital sound, and it sounds like a CD. Uh, maybe, I think technically it might be a touch worse than a CD, different sample rate or something like that. But for all intents and purposes, nobody's going to hear the difference. So it's got really good audio. Um, so it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to watch or it's easy on the eyes. And, uh, you know, the sound is fantastic. So really kind of fits in with that crowd that likes their, you know, two channel sound really good for the crowd that has uh, some old CRTs lying around. And then it's really, really cheap. Uh, depending on where you go, you can find laser discs for as low is two bucks a pop, which is pretty awesome. I have noticed that Laserdisc prices seem to be creeping upwards for some reason. Um, there's a lot of movies that I would have loved to buy, but I'm not going to spend $10 on an old Laserdisc. Uh, like the uh, the Star Wars trilogy, for example, uh, the 1989 Batman movie is another one um, that I just couldn't spend $10 on an inferior version of a movie I've already owned. Uh, but that $2 price, that's uh, that's an impulse buy for me. So that's it's just something to collect for that doesn't cost very much. I don't know much about Laserdisc hardware. I own three Laserdisc players now. Uh, one of them, one of them is half broke. It still works, and then the other two work just fine. Um, but I don't know what I'm going to do when those finally break. I don't know if components, laser components, uh, mechanical components for these devices still exist out there in the wild. So I don't know anything about repairing laser discs uh, to be honest with you the answer for now is i don't worry about repair uh parts for the laser disc format but a few other things that i wanted to touch on with laser disc um one it's not as good as dvd so i'm just it's just not one it's fascinating too that it's analog video it's composite analog video weirdly enough it's uh composite video stored on a reflective uh metallic um you know platter and instead of ones and zeros, it's a composite uh, RF signal. Um, so that's really interesting that there is analog video stored on something that we would traditionally equate with, you know, digital uh, format. But back when this came out in the 70s, you know, there was no there was no digital video compression and there certainly wasn't a processor fast enough to decode a digital 
uh, video stream if it even existed in the first place. So it's analog. And then, of course, we know digital audio did exist in an uncompressed way, so that is there. Um, but it looks great on a shelf, for one. Uh, the surround sound mixes on many of these are different uh, than what would be released in the home. Uh, so now when a movie is mixed, usually there are two mixes, one for a theater and one for the living room. So when you watch a movie, uh, a nice Blu-ray disc in your living room, that sound was mixed by the engineer for that 5.1 or 6.1 or 7.1 setup in your living room or now Dolby Atmos um, and whatever the DTS uh, upgrade is. But that is actually some people look at that as a negative. No, I want the you know what the director intended you know to be listened to was the theater mix, and that's not really true uh, because uh, a theater you know at your local cinema. It, that sound setup is not even close to the same as your living room. So usually there are two definitive versions of um, a surround mix, one for the home and one for the theater. And that's okay. There is no definitive. There's just two very different rooms that are mixed very differently uh, so that you get the best sound depending on your listening environment. That, of course, didn't exist in the 90s uh, when surround sound laser discs started coming out. Um, so a lot of these audio tracks found in laser discs are, are the theater mix. So it's a very different sound than you might find on a DVD or a Blu-ray. Whether that's better or worse, a certain Certainly up for interpretation, uh, but there are definitely people out there that think or feel or know uh, that that Laserdisc surround track is the definitive version, and that's how they want to experience that movie. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I can't say I agree. I you know I respect that, but that's something else that people really like. And then at the moment. I mean, that is the best way to watch the original Star Wars trilogy is the Laserdiscs uh, before the special editions. The Laserdisc, the Star Wars Laserdisc uh, versions, let's see, what am I trying to say here? Those Laserdisc versions of Star Wars before the special editions are available on DVD. I have all of them in the... Um, I have them all in DVD format, but LucasArts didn't even attempt to clean up the video. So it's like this, it looks like crap on DVD, to be quite honest with you. It's not anamorphic video. Uh, they There's more noise than exists on the Laserdisc version. They like really half-tasked it. There's a lot of interlacing artifacts as well. Um, so yeah, the Laserdisc is the best official way to watch those original Star Wars movies. So that's neat too. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the final segment of today's show, and that is the cheap games. So video game collecting can be very expensive, but it doesn't have to be. So I'm going to talk about a couple of games I didn't pay much for and uh, can still be found for cheap. So I'm going to change up the format a little bit here. Um, I'm going to talk about two games that I paid $6 for, so $5.99 instead of $4.99. Uh, the first one being Batman on the game. Game Boy. I got this for $5.99, I want to say last year, at half-priced books. Uh, so this is about a $8 to $10 game on eBay. I find the Batman, uh, the video game games, uh, to be, they're just very fascinating. Every version is completely different. So instead of doing ports, Sunsoft seemed to just make a new version of the game for every system. 
So I have this on the NES, I have this on the Game Boy, and I have this on the Sega Genesis, all developed by Sunsoft, all completely different games, which is weird. And then uh, they also did a version for the, the PC Engine or Turbo Graphics, which is even, that's more like a Bomberman game than a side-scrolling action game. Just real fascinating that they did that. Uh, the Game Boy version is one of my favorite Game Boy games. It also really annoys me. I talked about this a bit. I touched on this in last week's episode where uh, the last level in the game uh, is just this massive difficulty spike and it really, really sucked the fun out of the game for me uh, to just beat this game and clear that off my backlog. But up until till that last level, this is a really awesome Game Boy game, and it was released, it's kind of like the original Super Mario Land, where it's the screen, where they try to fit a console-sized game onto the tiny Game Boy screen with that limited resolution, so the Batman sprite is really small uh, to kind of simulate that full screen effect, and I don't really care for that in Super Mario Land, the controls are just too weird for me, I don't like them, uh, but in Batman, it, it works really well. There's these really floaty jumps, and Batman feels like a superhero. Uh, it is kind of more like a running gun, um, because Batman has his gun. That's his main weapon. But the upgrade system, the level design works really well with uh, the, the jumping characteristics of the Batman. Um, there is some shmup uh, sections in the game, which are actually really cool. It's just a really well-done early Game Boy game that happens to have an impossible last mission. But this is about eight to ten dollars. If you're looking for a really cool original Game Boy game, I highly recommend Batman the Video Game. Just know that if you do plan on beating it, uh, it's going to beat you first. Um, but still, really, really cool. The other six dollar game I got. Um, this is Total Overdose for. Oh, I almost made it the whole episode without the camera janking out. So this is Total Overdose for the original Xbox. This is the version you want. Skip the PS2 version. This is a GTA clone. So this is like an open world crime game. Um, the reason you want the Xbox version is because it runs in 720p instead of 480p. Uh, and it's just a gorgeous game. It doesn't run at 60 frames per second, but it's very, very smooth and uh, I, I do find the Xbox games that run in 720p um, they hold up really well I, I just they look amazing and it really shows off the power of the Xbox uh, but this is a, a GTA crime style game open world what I really dig about this game is you can beat it in less than 10 hours because if you're like me I don't really like a 25 hour adventure so that's really cool the other thing that's really cool besides it not being overwhelmingly long is just the gameplay. Uh, this is kind of like a Max Payne Matrix style uh, shooting mechanic and it works really really well. Um, with the dual, you know, with the triggers and with the analog sticks it's really easy uh, to kind of, you know, fight your way through the game and it never really gets old uh, with the different weapons and the different enemies. I just found it really engaging all the way through. The difficulty curve is really nice. The missions start off really easy and then the final few missions in the game are really really challenging uh, but when you die it, let's see here my memory's starting to fade on me a little bit um, there's kind of like a rewind time feature so you can kind of rewind 45 seconds or whatever and try a completely different strategy I do I don't know how normal that is in games now but as I'm sort of uh, wake making my way up to you know a decade ago of gaming I do find that better than just dying and having to start over and then uh, 
there's some really cool special moves that kind of make you invincible and give you some serious power-ups, uh, upgraded uh, firepower that if you kind of manage everything correctly with the rewinding and with the special moves, it makes... It just, if you use your brain, the game becomes very playable and very, I don't want to say easy, it's still challenging, but there's something rewarding about taking everything the game gives you and then sort of using it in the correct way and, you know, you're rewarded with success. And then this takes place mostly in Mexico. Uh, so there's just this really awesome art style, vibrant, bright colors. Everything seems to be like glowing and radiating color. And I just find it really, really beautiful to, to look at. So if you're not into GTA or open world crime games, um, I think you would still dig this. This is just a really good 3D action game. You don't even have to play it like an open world game if you don't want. You can just select the missions uh, at uh, you know and play it in a linear fashion if you so choose. So also some really fun driving stages. Of course, it's a open world crime game. You have cars that you can kind of hijack, uh, but there's actually like racing mini games where you kind of have to um, you have to have drive around fictional tracks and uh, you know run into timers and things like that. Just really really awesome game. Uh, check it out. So that is. Uh, so that is going to do it for today's episode. Uh, if you are watching this and you'd prefer to listen to it like a normal podcast, uh, I've got links to the RSS feed. I've got links to iTunes and Google Play. You can also search for Implant Games, all one word, on Stitcher and consume this as a normal audio podcast. If you're listening to this and you'd like to watch this or check out any of the other content that I produce each and every week, check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash implant games. And uh, until next time, guys, have yourselves a great week.